So I want to welcome everyone to uh, our next episode of uh, Building Bridges, our podcast uh, with my friends and, and guest hosts, uh, Ray Pearson and Dan Watkins. Um, and um, today we're going to talk about transgender rights and transgender issues. Uh, I want to start off by just indicating that all viewpoints that we express here are our individual viewpoints. They do not represent any of our um, institutional or representational viewpoints. Um, and the whole purpose of this podcast is to model and foster civil discourse. So uh, Ray will share with you that he is a fairly conservative Republican. Jan will share with you that she's a fairly liberal Democrat. And I'm kind of a curmudgeonly independent. Um, and uh, sometimes we'll, uh, we'll lean toward Ray's direction. Sometimes we'll lean toward Jan's direction. Uh, and am trying to moderate the conversation just a little bit. But I also want you to know that we try not to stick uh, just only to the issue identified, but to uh, personalize a little bit of the podcast, because we're all three graduates of the 1972 graduating class of Huntington Park High School um, Spartans. Uh, and uh, so we want to acknowledge our, our common roots uh, through this podcast as well. Ray, I'm going to start our uh, podcast today by asking you for your general outlook on the issue of transgender rights before we go into particulars. So what guides... What guides my comments is what I call fairness doctrine. And all people, and I had to write this down because I spent some time since our last podcast uh, to do some of my own research and see what, what do I really believe, um, you know, and what guides it. And, and I think it's a fairness, um, which guides a lot of my comments as it relates to things that we talk about. So all people, no matter their sexual preference, should be afforded the protections of the law. Uh, both federal and state laws. Um, and young people, because I spent a lot of time in my life uh, with young people, and in particular as a, as a school board member, uh, public school board member, um, and you know, should be protected from harassment, bullying, or threats of physical violence. I do think local jurisdictions, uh, in this case, the states, should have the right to determine birth certificates and uh, um, uh, if, if someone is born as a male or is born as a female, that the birth certificate recognizes that. I do support the fact that there are two sexes, both male and female. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop with that comment. All right. So there's nuances galore to, to poke around in, in those, but I'm going to shift to Jan and get her general uh, outlook first before we, before we look at those details. Yeah. Um, I, my, my general outlook on it is that um, I disagree with Ray in that there are not just two genders. There are people who are born intersex and they have uh, characteristics, uh, physical characteristics and hormonal characteristics of both um, genders. So we, we don't, we don't uh, um, you know, acknowledge that. We don't acknowledge that on birth certificates and I think that when a child is born with, uh, let's just say, not very clear sexual genitalia or sexual, uh, you know, characteristics, the doctor who delivered the child assigns that person, that baby, to a gender. And sometimes it's not really the gender that they feel that they fit as they get older. I mean, there have been lots of cases of four-year-olds being born 
assigned a gender. And I mean, by the time they're four years old, they know that they're not that gender. It's very clear. Um, a good example of that is Jazz Jennings, who has a reality show on Netflix. And um, we've watched her grow up. And for, I think about the first three years of her life, she was assigned a male gender. And uh, at about four years old, she declared that she was not going to wear boys clothes. She wasn't going to have a boy's name. And she was definitely a girl and her parents sought help and counsel and helped her become the adult woman that she is today. And she's very comfortable with that transition. Um, and, you know, some states are regulating uh, whether a doctor can um, assign a neutral gender. Uh, you know, there's seven states right now that are uh, requiring children uh, who are questioning their gender or clear that their gender is not their birth gender um, from playing sports. They've already, you know, made it clear that in scholastic um, situations, they are not able to play sports at all unless they play it with their birth gender. I think that's discriminatory. So I can just leave that there. We're definitely gonna talk about the issue of sports, but let me, let me ask you, Jan, so is it your, is it your sense that, the, um, that this possibility that people are not born strictly male or strictly female or do not conform to, the, to the, that identity uh, at an early age, uh, if not from birth, is that something that's always existed in your viewpoint? Because it seems like there's been a proliferation of, of these kinds of, um, uh, at least awareness. Yeah. I think that there has, it, it seems like there's a proliferation, but I believe that it's always been. Um, in most cultures, not in our culture, but in a lot of indigenous cultures going back a long time, um, there is room for two-spirit people. There are, uh, you know, in our Native American cultures, it's called two-spirit. Um, in uh, other East Indian um cultures it's they have room for people who don't fit this you know male female binary um situation uh aborigines all a lot of cultures that certainly predate ours um are much more comfortable with people who are not um who are not binary but so 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 uh, granted that there has been that some of our notions of what it means to be male or female in that dichotomy are, are um, social constructions. If, if you assume that, I don't know, maybe one out of 20 people don't fit into that, that neat uh, uh, paradigm, is that number, is that incidence, one out of 20, is it higher today than it was 20 years ago or 30 years ago, or was this something that was just in the closet? I think it was probably in the closet. I also, do, I also do think that with the internet and more um, information at, you know, at everyone's fingertips, I think that kids are beginning to awaken to the possibility of being something different. And they, you know, in the past, it wouldn't have been tolerated in our culture. So people were probably very closeted or, or just you know, 
tamped it down and lived a different life than they probably would have. There weren't the possibilities of hormone replacement therapy or hormone blockers. There wasn't the possibility of top or bottom surgery then. Uh, they probably didn't understand it. And if they had talked about it, they would have been seen as mentally ill or um, evil, possessed. So Ray, I guess a part of the reason why I'm asking Jan about the, the incidence of people that don't identify as male or female, uh, potentially having increased over a period of time, um, is whether or not we have created confusion for kids. Not, I'm not saying all kids that, are, that identify mm -hmm. as, um, as trans, but that in some kids, we've created confusion by adding to the panoply of gender identity uh, and the literature, uh, pop culture, around, I, I don't have to be a boy, I don't have to be a girl, here's all these other uh, choices. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I, I was listening to Jan's comments um, and, and I think for me, I, I, I've got to separate that group of, let's just say babies that are born that are not necessarily male or, or, or excuse me, have either both male pieces, parts, or it's female, and it's not clear. It's not clear that I think that that's different. That group is different than somebody along their growth, and they rec start recognizing that they feel more uh, familiar with a different gender. And I think that's that's different than somebody who is born with how Jan you described that mm -hmm. uh, to do that. So you're differentiating between people who have a physiological clear identity, yes, male think, or female, for, versus those who are born with one physiology, physiological manifestation, but, yes. but don't identify with it. Yes. And, and, and yeah. so, you know, I'll back up a little bit, Jan, because I think you're correct. Um, and us Republicans, we're, we're willing to say when we're wrong. Um, uh, to do, uh, so, <laughs> subtle, subtle dick um, <laughs> not keep going down the same road. Some Republicans are. <laughs> that being said, I, I think you're right. If, if there is that group of, of um, human beings, okay, that don't necessarily identify physiologically with one gender or the other. The other side is, and I will stay consistent with that, is that that, that group of kids that were born definitively, physiologically, as a male or female to do that. And that's a different conversation in, ter in terms of that. And I'm, I'm not here to debate with you, Jan, or with you, Luis, that if someone identifies along their life, because we have kids in our schools that have come out, if you will, and say they identify now more with being a female or male than what their gender identity was at birth to do that. And I'm not here to argue that. That is not something, first of all, I'm um, capable of doing. Uh, don't have the skill sets to do or anything like that. But I do think there is some conversation, mm -hmm. at least when you facilitate this, about fairness and fairness in, uh, to all concerned about this, no matter if it's in the school environment, no matter if it's on the athletic field, no matter if it's within a basketball court, uh, no matter if it's in restrooms or not, or a locker room. And, and I think that's where 
you have, uh, you don't have to, but uh, my position is there's male and female on this for that part of the conversation. So, so that's interesting. And, and, and again, we're about to plunge into the arena of sports and uh, restrooms, but I, you uh, said at the outset and reinforced just now that fairness is kind of a guiding principle for you, but then your conclusion about having males and females uh, seem to um, uh, maybe cast some, some questions around what you mean by fairness. And in your opening statement, you also, you also indicated that you think the states should be allowed to make those determinations. But, but how fair is that to a boy born in Mississippi who identifies as a girl and the state tells him, I don't care who you identify with, you're gonna go to the boys restroom, you're gonna play on boys teams or not at all. So uh, you're using Mississippi, but all three of us live in California. So, um, you know, you... We're talking about Missouri, West Virginia, Texas, Idaho, Mississippi, uh, Minnesota, and Tennessee at this point. And there are 17 other states right now with legislation pending on this subject about uh, sports to be played by the birth gender only. And my point about bringing up intersexed people uh, first was to say that physiologically, it's, it's kind of obvious to see that they aren't binary because physiologically uh, they aren't. But when you, when you, you Louise brought up, when um, you know, people are older and they decide that they are not the gender that they were born to. Um, I think that, that that happens physiologically too. It's not exactly a choice. It's, you know, your brain is an organ. It's all it is, just like your heart, your lungs, your pancreas, your stomach. Your, if your brain is telling you that you are one thing and your body is not matching that, then it's really a physiological genetic issue, probably. I mean, we haven't been able to, I don't think, determine that uh, scientifically yet, but it would, it, would, it would seem logical that it would be that. And yes, I do think that within sports, there can be some issues about uh, not f unfairness. Mm -hmm. as far as you know physiological issues going on however if we allowed if we allowed children to take um you know hormone blockers and delay um puberty when they have these questions about being transgender then if you block those hormones and puberty doesn't happen their body is a child's body they don't, de they don't develop the, the muscle structure, the bone structure, uh, the height that a, a male would get. And, uh, in, you know, it gives a child time to figure out if they really are transgender or if they're confused and they need some guidance with that to figure it out. So in that instance, you could make, maybe make a case uh, that that, uh, child uh, should, if, if he identifies actually as a she, uh, and, and because of hormone blocking, uh, his, his physiology or anatomy develops uh, at a, a 
uh, at an abnormal uh, male pace. Uh, right. That you could make a case that, that that child should then be able to play in the sport with the gender that he identifies in or she identifies in. But, but with, uh, with, in the absence of that exception, somebody who has been a male all of his life and then decides to become a female, that identifies as a female, I think Ray's got a pretty good argument that it's unfair to allow that person to play in a, in a female sports and dominate physically the competition in that arena. Mm-hmm. Uh, a famous case with that, a, a contemporary of ours, is Renee Richards. Right, right. In tennis, in, in women's tennis. Um, the, part of the issue is, yes, Renee did not have the advantage of hormone blockers, mm-hmm. uh, surgery, all of that kind of stuff back then. Uh, but what she did have was the ability to block her androgen and testosterone and go on estrogen. When a person does that, they don't build up the muscle fibers and the muscle tissue and they actually lose it and their body becomes more feminized. Right, but she was, wasn't she like six foot two or something like that? So yeah. she still had this height advantage. Yeah. Because you, there's That's nothing you can do about the height. However, I've researched it over the last few weeks. And <laughs> what's interesting is if you look at Naomi Osaka, who is probably the one of the, she might be the top yeah. tennis player right now. You've got Serena Williams, and then you've got Naomi Osaka. Genetically, Serena has much more, much more muscle tissue and height over Naomi, but Naomi's beating her. So really, is it about height or is it about talent? Well, but that may be the exception that, that proves the rule, Jan. I'm not sure. Let me toss it to Ray. That's true. I, I, I think I gave you a softball on this one, Ray, because I, uh, I, I sort of lean in that the direction of the unfairness. Uh, but so I do that makes a good back. argument. I, I do want to go back about states' rights because we kind of left that one for a minute. So you can't pick and choose all the time on states' rights um, and say, okay, on this issue, because I'm, I feel a certain way, it should be the federal side. And what guides this whole conversation is not us three. What guides us is the Constitution of the United States on states and federal roles on things. And I I would suggest we don't try to get into a conversation because I didn't do all my homework on states' rights versus federal rights vis-a-vis the Constitution, which some of our teachers would really be pleased with us if we could just do this off the cuff. And they said, they remember everything they, I was t- teaching them about the Constitution and everything. But for me, that guides a lot of even on this conversation that these states, um, as much Jan pointed out, it still comes back for me, states' rights. As much as I'm a Californian and I don't care for a lot of the things that are coming out of our legislature and our governor, I still honor the fact that it's the Californians' right as a majority Californians to determine how on, on policy and governance, the state should go in, directionally on certain issues. Even if I don't agree with you two, you voted on something, I still will defend all three of our rights for states' rights for making that decision. Well, you know, you're, so you're singing my song in a lot of ways because I, I have a, 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 
genuine respect for the 10th Amendment, the original framework of the founders uh, to give states most of the authority uh, on, on governance. But I, I would point out, and I used to tell my liberal friends when they used to think that the federal government was the answer to all of life's problems, I used to point out someday you're going to have a federal government that you're going to despise. And boy, hasn't that uh, hap happened in our lifetime. Uh, and, and then you're going to want to cling to states' rights as a protection from the overreach of the federal government. And I think we saw that. But I would also point out that the, the right seems to have its problems with states' rights when it comes to uh, end-of-life decisions or, or, uh, or, or legalizing marijuana uh, or, uh, uh, decisions. Voting so they'll rights. say states' rights until they don't like the states', uh, the states laws. Yeah. I mean, if, if we had not passed the Civil Rights Act, if the government had not passed the Civil Rights Act, a lot of these states that are banning, you know, uh, trans kids from being able to play in, in, in scholastic sports, I have to say, those states are the same ones that would not have changed any of their civil rights policies since the 14th Amendment. You know, the 14th Amendment, it took over 100 years for that to be reinstated, actually. It had been gutted by Dred Scott. So it was over 100 years later that we got the Civil Rights Act, and we were actually able to enforce that, that 14th Amendment, equality for fact, everyone. Let's, let's capitalize on the 14th Amendment. It's a big, big part of today's discussion. So, Ray, don't, it, I mean... First of all, the, the party of Lincoln, the one of the reasons why I, I love the old fashioned Re uh, Republican party uh, is because it was, the, it was the party of Lincoln, the party that championed the 13th, 14th and 15th amendments. But the 14th in particular is the one that gave to former slaves, says no state shall deny any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. That beautiful language. How, do, how doesn't that restrict what the states can do in this case? Because if it's treating trans, uh, individuals different than it would treat um, uh, uh, males and females in a binary system. Isn't that a direct violation of the 14th Amendment? Uh, that, that's, a, that's a great question, Luis, that you, you pose. And um, it's gonna hard to argue with a lawyer, okay, uh, by training <laughs> uh, to do that. Um, but I did pull out one of my great resources, which is the History Channel. And the 14th Amendment, all our amendments, you have to take context what was going on in our country at the time and why it was passed at the time. So the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution was ratified in 1868. And if, if my history serves me correctly, that was three years after the Civil War. After it ended and after Lincoln that, was that's assassinated. Correct. Can we all agree on that? That's, mm -hmm. It was three years after. And it's granted citizenship to all persons born or naturalized in the United States, including former enslaved people, and guaranteed all citizens equal protection of the laws. And then one of the three amendments passed during the Reconstruction era to abolish slavery and establish civil and legal rights for Black Americans. It would become the basis for many landmark decisions. And, and then, you know, you look in later sections of the 14th Amendment and authorize the federal government to punish states that violated or abridged their citizens' right to vote by proportionately reducing the state's representation in Congress 
and mandated that anyone who engaged, and I have to read this, in, in insurrection against the United States could not hold civil, military, or elected office without the approval of two-thirds of the House and Senate. At some point, we'll come back to that insurrectionist language. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cur current events, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. It's come full circle. So, you know, to answer your, your question about how the 14th Amendment uh, fits into the whole conversation about trans is, is once again, is I think the debate, and I think the lines are being drawn here in this conversation is which issues are federal government issues and what are state issues on, on this? And, you know, I, I think you, I think that in the case of Mississippi, in the case, and I'm going state by state, is, is it also gives everybody in that state the right to vote and the right to vote on which government they choose to have. So, um, however, if you, if you restrict voting rights in those states, which we are seeing happening contemporary right now uh, in Georgia, Mississippi, uh, a lot of the Southern states, um, then really the 14th amendment get, gets gutted again. I mean, and when we're talking about a, a, a constitutional guarantee, it's, it's different than, you know, I, again, I, I'm a fan of the 10th Amendment, but when the Constitution has been amended to restrict what states are able to do, I mean, you would, no person on the right would say the, the, the voters of California could therefore uh, eradicate entirely our right to bear arms because it's, it's within the state's rights. No, mm -hmm. Because that would- that That's would, a great one, Luis, because if you took the legislature now, and the governor now, you could see that be uh, exactly going in that direction and have tried. And I would be on the front lines with you, Ray, arguing that the state, although it may regulate uh, guns, it, it may license them, for example, and it may limit assault weapons, for example, it may not take away all guns. That would be a, a, an evisceration. It would limit it. And if the people wanted to, eradicate all guns, that, that would require a constitutional amendment. Correct. I guess, I guess my point though is, is that uh, it's taken way over a hundred years to get to the Civil Rights Act because uh, a lot of the Southern states did not respect the 14th Amendment. They absolutely turned away from it, made their own states rights so that that's what happened with segregation. They basically put it right back into pre-Civil War time. Because yeah, a lot I of the people, you know. I was gonna say, I wouldn't disagree with you. And yeah, you but know, I have a funny, for you, as we yeah. began this conversation, I'm identified as a, you know, fairly conservative Republican. You're identified as a fairly liberal Democrat and Luis identifies as an independent. Well, the, the history you're giving, it's your party that caused that. In fact, it was my party that was trying to reverse that. However, I will actually, say actually, that's not entirely true, Ray. The person that is absolutely responsible for the 14th Amendment is Frederick Douglass. He fought tirelessly. Lincoln was not involved really with slavery when the Civil War started. It was more about economics and keeping the union together. That was his real focus was keeping the union Agreed. together. Frederick Douglass had been 
to Europe, had come back to this country, was talking worldwide about slavery in the United States and what that was really like. And we owe a lot of credit to him. I just finished the, the yeah. David Light biography not too long ago. But, yeah. but, into, yeah. but in terms of party responsibilities, Jan, I think Ray's got the winning hand on this one. It was the Republican mm -hmm. Party that, that held the nation together and, and, and abolished slavery. So Frederick Douglass gets a lot of credit, but this one has to go to the GOP. And I'll add one other. The actual president that protected African-Americans was Ulysses S. Grant. It wasn't Abraham Lincoln. Mm -hmm. Well, Lincoln gets credit too. I mean, and Lincoln's views did evolve over time. You know yeah, that. But they after did. the Civil War, yep. when the Ku Klux Klan was starting and the lynchings were starting, it was Grant who sent federal troops to protect African-Americans. Mm -hmm. And he was pushing for the right for them to vote back then to do that. Now, I know we've kind of migrated this conversation about states' rights on the trans issue. And, and I know we're trying to model uh, you know, this. Jan and I are gonna disagree and that's okay. Yeah. I'm gonna be a states' right guy on the trans issue. And Jan, I think I'm listening to you carefully, Jan, yeah. is that you would say this is really in the privy of the federal government and shouldn't allow these states that you enumerated. And by the way, I think the Mississippi, Georgia has higher democratic registration than Republican now. No, uh, they do. To do that. Just, just as a point of reference mm -hmm. uh, uh, to do that. Idaho, no. Idaho has still a higher Republican reference on this, uh, really? Republican registration. But I just want to kind of make sure I'm listening to you mm -hmm. and hearing you. And Luis, I'm hearing you too as well. Well, I love that about you, Ray. And, I, and, I, and you know, frankly, if, if uh, I knew more thoughtful Republicans of, uh, of your ilk today, mm -hmm. I would uh, become a little bit closer to the Republican Party than I am right now. I've been so alienated from it by virtue of the, the Trumpism that we've seen in the last uh, four years. And I won't, I won't defend Of course. Them. I, I told of you course. early on, I will not defend them. That is not my view of the heart and soul of the Republican Party. And what you've said just now, I think is absolutely central to the whole reason for having this podcast. It's not because we're trying to come to a right or wrong answer. We have our individual convictions about what's right and what's wrong, uh, but it's really to be able to disagree with each other and still maintain respect for each other um, as, as human beings. So I appreciate that point as well. I'm gonna ask one more question in this arena before I shift it just a little bit to the more personal stuff. And that is, your, your take on gender neutral restrooms. When I was president of Moore Park College, we established some gender neutral restrooms. I won't tell you that it was without some challenges along the way. Uh, and I have sympathy for both sides of the equation. I have sympathy for folks who maybe, maybe I was born as a male, but I identify as a female and I ought to be able to use the restroom that I'm most comfortable with as a female. Uh, on the other hand, I identify with a straight young female that goes into a restroom and doesn't want to find out that there's somebody that appears to be a male in the stall next to her. Um, I, uh, your take. Uh, I'll start with Jan. My take is that why does it matter to you who's in the stall next to you? You're not looking at them except maybe their feet. You know, well, I think I mean, one of the real life cases we had was a young woman who did, he, she admits that the change in the signs and she found herself in the stall and then suddenly there's a, a loud cough from the stall next to her and there's a man with his uh, pants around his uh, feet. Uh, and it's just a little disturbing to her. And I, 
don't know about you, but I have a little bit of, of uh, sympathy for her uh, surprise, dismay. I'm not saying it outweighs necessarily my sympathy for the person who wants to be able to use the restroom that they most closely identify with, but mm -hmm. I, it's not quite so black and white for me. Okay. I, I, for, for me, it's pretty black and white. Of course, you would know that. Um, I mean, I don't think that gender really has anything to do with a restroom. You know, it's about doing something bodily function. And I think males and females do bodily functions. And as long as we have some privacy in doing that, um, I'm fine with it. I mean, after I all, Ray, that's I don't see what the big deal is about it, but I know that it is a big deal. Well, I've, had Ray, a lot of, I've had a lot of my trans uh, clients uh, just face a lot of discrimination, yep. mostly at work uh, with the restroom issue. Uh, you know, and it, and it's, and it's very, um, I think it, it's very rude and it's been done very rudely. It's been very hurtful. Some people, some of my clients have even gotten depressed um, about and maybe how they've been discriminated against. So there are issues with it. Yeah. Ray, uh, let me toss it to you. Sensitive issue, what are your thoughts? Um, I think the law is pretty clear. We have to provide restrooms for everybody. So I, I think in, in, in Luis or, or Jan, both of you may know what the law, but I think under President Obama, I think he made, I, th I thought you had to provide, I think, because in mm -hmm. our schools, we have to have bathrooms that have, I'll, I'll just think about it, a figure of a male, a female, and then somebody who would be gender neutral, if you will. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's the only real solution under the law currently to do. I know yeah. when I go to the airport, so, you know, Karen and I just traveled to Texas just to get out, just to get away because we like traveling. And Karen hadn't seen Texas before. That's the closest you can get to is traveling to a foreign country, right? So, I <laughs> but what I, I hadn't been in airport. In Texas to boot. <laughs> I, I, I knew this was, I was going to set myself up in, in this <laughs> by saying Texas, but nevertheless. Um, I noticed in the bathroom there's a, a you know a male figure a female and a gen uh, and I would disagree with Jan uh, respectfully uh, gender does play a big part in bathrooms um, mm -hmm. I, and I'll, I'll just this is not scientific or any research done on but my experience I'll give you my experience one day I, on business I was traveling had to go to an airport and I was extremely tired I walked accidentally into a women's bathroom okay. <laughs> I was horrified at myself, terrified. Uh, and I ran out, make sure I get to the male bathroom. And I was so grateful no women saw me to do that for my Why, own Ray? embarrassment. They would have just no, said, hey, this is the head. women's, they would have just said, this is the women's restroom. And you would have left. Maybe with a little red face, but you would have just left. Not no, necessarily. No harm, no Not necessarily. I think. I think that would be idealistic thinking. I also think there's some, there's still some fear um, that I might have been going in there for the wrong reasons. And, and there's enough cases of where men have put cameras and women's bathrooms and done some really terrible mm -hmm. things uh, to violate a woman's privacy and her right in a bathroom. And so I think there's still that 
kind of hanging around thing. Uh, safety. I think you need. I think for me, I need to go in a bathroom and feel safe. Uh, I can't speak as a woman uh, mm -hmm. to do that, but as a male, I want to feel safe when I go into the bathroom to do my business. To do that, not just my. Um, I'm, I'm searching for a word. Um, you know, not anybody violating my own privacy, but safety also has to play a part for me in a bathroom. Mm -hmm. And that's just my personal, I don't I have any research to say, you know, that's really important on most people that they want safety right. when they go into a bathroom. But let me, let me just say a, a real quick story here. Um, I've gone to several concerts in the past, not in the last year, but in the past, where at the intermission, of course, all the women have to get up and go to the bathroom. And the restrooms, you know, the, the line for the, the ladies room is increasingly long and it just, it's crazy. And there's only one female, you know, women's bathroom. So, you know, a bunch of us said, well, let's go use the men's. There's no line. So a bunch of us stormed the, the men's restroom. And this happens routinely at concerts and stuff. We stormed the bathroom. All the guys are standing at the stalls. Now there may be, I mean, at the, at the urinals. Now, maybe there might be a couple in the stalls, but they've got the door closed. The guys are standing there urinating. They don't care that we're there. They're like a little surprised that we all walked in, but we all took a stall and we're able to get back to the concert. I don't think anybody felt unsafe. I don't think anybody felt weird about it. It was just nature called, you know? And I think that eventually we can get past the, the fears and the biases that we may have. And I'm not saying you have biases, Ray. I, I'm talking about in general, our, you know, our culture about this and become more comfortable with gender neutral restrooms and, and public restrooms. I'm gonna have to have, let, let Jan have the last word on this one because we're uh, okay. approximating uh, the end of our time. But I wanted to uh, not leave without just asking you a couple of quick uh, personal questions. So. Uh, graduates class of 1972, Huntington Park High School. We were talking about music earlier. At some point, one of these podcasts, I'll shift more substantively into music, the differences between our music then, our music today. Give me one song that meant something to you around that, that period of time. I'll start with Ray. Uh, you know what? I, I, I think we started early uh, our last podcast, but I, I got it keeps coming back to me. As soon as you said that, it was Sly and the Family Stone, and um, it, you guys can help me out here, but it was, what was the title? I can um, hear it. Yeah. Everyday people. Everyday people. Yes, everyday people. Absolutely. For some crazy reason. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe it was, in fact, I think I do know what was happening to me personally. I think I was running for student body president and I knew I knew I needed to have different blocks of people in our school, African-American, uh, some of our English second language students, uh, people I hung around with, um, low riders. And um, someone told me when that song said, you know, it's different strokes for different folks, Ray, mm -hmm. to do that. You know, I lost that election to an African-American guy named Lucius Ware. 
-hmm. to do that. And it was very evident what was going on at the time in our high school um, uh, to do that. And what was going on in our culture, in our state, in our country at the time. So that song still holds true to me today because some of the same issues we're dealing with as we deal, dealt in 72. Are you talking about our fraught problems with race in America? Yes, yes, okay. yes, right. yes. Some, some of the same conversations, some of the same concerns are, are back with, are, I don't think they ever went really away. They may have been dormant for a while. And then there, there's a police shooting or abuse of power and it brings it all back out. You we'll, know, we'll absolutely triggers back to that all again. In, in some uh, imminent uh, podcast. But before I pivot to Jan, Give us like a two-minute synopsis for all of those, all of us who knew and loved you in high school. Tell us about the five years following high school, just in a in a two-minute nutshell. Still to you, Ray. Uh, well, you know what? I was interested in hearing Jan what her song was, and all yours, right. Louise. All right, so you forgot your two. All right, so let's. So I was going to come to those, but let's ask Jan now about a song that meant something to her right around that era of 1972. I think Jimi Hendrix, um, I, you know, a song doesn't really come to mind because I loved music so much. Jimi Hendrix, uh, maybe Indigata De Vida, Iron Butterfly. That was my first concert I went to. Everyone was high. Right. <laughs> um, wow. Um, you know, the folk music at the time. Um, and we were talking about Joan Baez earlier. when we Joan Baez. Carol King, um, you know, Simon and Garfunkel, all of that, uh, Cream, Pink Floyd, all of those groups, uh, you know, all of that music was just indicative of what was going on at the time politically and culturally. And I, I it was ex an exciting time for me, musically. I have a less deep answer than Jan's. I, I just, I have a recollection of uh, Don McLean's Miss American Pie when we just we just graduated and we had just left the, the stadium for the parking lot and there was somebody that was doing um, uh, donuts in the parking lot and blaring um, Miss American Pie and that song has just sort of always captured that moment for me. Awesome. So five, five years following high school, right? So five years. Wow. Okay. So that we're 72 to 77. So um, I, I didn't do the take a year off like some of the kids do now. <laughs> yeah. That wouldn't work for me. You know, I, um, I, I, was, I was working at the YMCA at the time and I was pretty politicized, but I also saw the need for certain groups of kids in our communities that weren't being served. And it was mostly Hispanic kids um, and mostly from Hispanic kids that were maybe lower income and I was starting to get really sensitized towards that. Um, and also some of the communities we weren't serving at the YMCA, but had a service area like Linwood, which was a lot more African-American kids. And I, so what I did was um, I, I went right to college, which was Cal, Cal State LA. Uh, and the reason I, I got accepted several other schools out of LA. Uh, the reason I stayed in LA was because in my mind, my 10-year plan, wasn't even a five-year, it was like a 10-year plan, was that I was going to stay in Southeast LA 
I was going to get involved in politics, be elected, and change the world, um, essentially. And a lot of the world that I was going to change was this group of part of our community mm -hmm. at the time. So I even picked a major, frankly, that wasn't going to challenge me, but was going to give me a degree that gave me some uh, vertical movement because I, I understood what was happening with a college degree at that time. It, it opened doors, you can make more money. It wasn't even the money part, it was opening doors career-wise. So I picked recreation administration, which I knew was not gonna be a, a mentally academic, real challenging, where I would have to always spend time in the books type of thing, but it would get me a degree. Um, and so I spent the next, um, I had a surfing accident in, let's see, 76, which put me behind it. I had to drop out of school for, a, a, it was a quarter system. I had to drop out. I, I broke this bone in three places at Malibu mm. and almost lost sight of my eye. Uh, I healed fine, um, went back to surfing too. Uh, but it took me five years to get my my bachelor of science. It was a bachelor of science. It was uh, the department was in the uh, was a science department. So, um, but I was already doing my career. I worked for the YMCA. I worked uh, gang outreach for the Boys Club of San Gabriel Valley uh, to do that. Then I was hired in '77 by a community based organization called Bienvenidos Community Center in West San Gabriel Valley. And the reason they hired me because they figured uh, my integrity and because of my uh, working with the communities that they serve, which were mostly low-income Hispanic, and they were under the Comprehensive Employment Training Act back then uh, to take underemployed people, mostly Hispanic, um, and get them employed to do that. But they, were, they thought I could go in and clean up some of the illegal stuff that was going on in the center. To do that, so that that's what I was doing from '72 to '77. And didn't you tell me your minor was Chicano studies? Yes. So I, I, you know, this evolution of growing up in Southeast LA, and you know, even before that, you guys didn't know, but I spent a lot of my life in East LA um, to do that. I had a real affinity for the Hispanic community, you know, to do that. And Spanish was spoken in my house. Well, my grandparents, a version of it because they were Spanish Jews, they were Sephardic Jews, and they spoke a version of it. So, you know, I, I was kind of mixed up about my ethnicity in some ways uh, to do that, but I had this affinity uh, to it. And so I start taking just some uh, Chicano studies classes, to, and I really started liking what I was hearing. And um, so I ended up with a I could have probably had a major actually because of the amount of units I took on that. And it was, you know, it was very eye-opening uh, what was going on in the Chicano movement at the time because those professors represented that. Uh, some of them were uh, socialist, by the way, and they didn't mind admitting that at that time. Some of them came out of uh, the Brown Beret, uh, which, and some of them were just part of the Chicano movement. But uh, yeah, that was my story. And here what I am, a Republican. interesting story. And I, wow. I won't ask him this time, Dan, but eventually I'll come back to ask if there was a, a significant person in your life at that time. Um, 
like did you marry was that later but we'll we'll leave that for another time okay uh, and we'll also ask you about the next five years in increments over time as well and eventually we'll also ask about favorite memories from high school favorite teachers favorite places on the campus that kind of thing how about you jan the five years following high school and i wish i had known you better in high school by the way i yeah me uh, too I, I know from our just from our interactions here that we would have been you and i would have been lifelong friends you uh, would have been had I gotten to know you in high school, but uh, yeah, listen. Yeah. I want to hear if she thinks she was shy in high school or not. Well, I'm an introvert, but I don't think I was particularly shy in high school. Okay. I, I think I was pretty social in my social group. And I, I was sort of an outer circle of the socias, <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I was I was that outer circle of the socias, I think. Um, but I I don't think I was shy. I um, I just wanted to get the hell out of high school. <laughs> I wanted to go to college so bad, I really did, because I thought that would probably be a real life changer for me to go to college. I it was the first person in my family to uh, even go to college. So um, and then first person to get a master's degree and a license and stuff. So. I was really excited about that, but I was going to be a dentist. I was working in high school. I got a job uh, working for an oral surgeon and became a dental assistant for an oral surgeon. And um, so I was going to school, supporting myself, paying for school and working two or three jobs at the time, you know, in the first five years, just trying to make the rent. And, uh, you know, uh, I think boxes of macaroni and cheese the you know, little yeah. boxes i think they were 25 to 27 cents a box yep. yep so um you know that that sustained me i think for a while um you know that was my go-to food um but i managed to uh decide that i didn't want to be a, a dentist or a, a dental hygienist or anything like that i switched majors after about Mm, two and a half years, I had a, a serious car accident. And wow. uh, it took me about a year to um, recover from that I had been ejected from a car, went oh, through the wow. windshield. So um, I uh, decided through my journey with that, um, because I had to go on welfare for a little while, uh, general relief, because uh, I couldn't work. Um, I decided that I wanted to switch majors and become a social worker. I was going to Cal State Long Beach at the time, and uh, that's where I went right after high school. And so I went over and asked them if they had an introductory course to social work, and they said they did. I signed up and fell in love with, with social work and with eventually uh, got my master's in um, marriage and family therapy. So um, I became very interested in working with the community and uh, working with addicts. Uh, indigent addicts uh, and alcoholics and did that for quite a while. Um, and I was very involved in the women's movement on campus too in those first five years out of high school. Um, and then, uh, and also uh, the gay, gay pride movement also. Um, so I was, I would have labeled myself in those first five years after high school, a radical lesbian feminist. <laughs> social worker, maybe. <laughs> well, I, uh, at some point, I'm going to come back and ask about your own love life too, Jan, and see sure. uh, if there 
partner in your life in those days or, um, uh, or whether you moved on at some point. Uh, so I, just to wrap this up, I, I, went, I was so naive about college choices. I, my parents were wonderful parents, uh, really supportive, uh, never, never missed a meal. We were poor, but we never missed a meal. Uh, and they encouraged us to go to college, but they had an eighth grade Mexican education. So they didn't know how to advise us in terms of choosing a college or a major uh, or a career. And so I made a lot of, my siblings and I made a lot of mistakes along the way. The first one I made, one of the ones, early ones I made was I went off, you know, when we met with a high school counselor in, in our junior year and they asked us, what do you want to study? What do you want to be? Uh, I've had a lifelong interest in law. I don't know where it came from, but at that moment in time, what I said was, I want to go into forestry. Now, this is a kid from East Los Angeles. I had never met a forest ranger in my life. I had no idea what the study entailed, but I got this romantic idea of being up on top of a mountain with a Jeep and a dog and solitude and looking for forest fires. Sounds and great. So on the basis of that answer. <laughs> right now. <laughs> on the basis of that answer, the counselor, uh, long before the internet, so she picked, went through her catalogs. Uh, best two schools in the nation for forestry were Humboldt State and Utah State. And Utah State was furthest from home, so I chose Utah State and off I went. And then after doing well all through school, I promptly bombed the very first college test I ever took in chemistry. I yeah. couldn't visualize it. And I realized that high school had come too easily. I didn't really know how to study. I had to go back and just sort of figure out how to be a good college student. Um, so uh, it was, that was the first in a whole bunch of mistakes I made along the way. It all worked out okay in the end, but um, yeah, I hope to have spared my kids a little bit of the, the, you know, the lessons that you have to learn. First generation has to learn for, for themselves. Right. Um, and no significant love life at that time, although we'll come back and explore that issue later. Uh, okay our subsequent podcast. So it's it's 11 o'clock and that's about the hour. So I am going to uh, stop recording and wish our um, listeners, our, our few listeners, uh, uh, a, a great day. Thank you for joining us. We hope this was uh, enjoyable for you uh, and we hope to see you for our next one.